Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really great as well. Thanks. Awesome. Nothing super, <laughs> yeah, nothing exciting, but seem to be doing well. But we are thinking about our friends in Texas and Louisiana after this Hurricane Laura that not it didn't come out of nowhere, but it got so big and so crazy so quickly. So anybody in that area, we're thinking about you. And as Floridians, we've you know had these storms and stuff, but what they're going through right now is so rough, and we're just you're in our thoughts right now. Yeah, definitely. I have some family that lives in Houston, so that's very oh, close yeah. to where the hurricane kind of made landfall yeah. and had its bands out. Thankfully, they're okay. But yes, we're definitely thinking about everybody who lives in that area and hope everybody is safe. So I'm really excited to just get into the story this week. This is a case that is just so different than anything I'm really used to researching and learning about. And that's mostly because this crime took place such a long time ago. And when I say a long time ago, I don't mean like hundreds of years ago or anything crazy. I just mean it happened before I was born. So that seems like a very long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) To you, of course, yes. But to somebody that's 70, no, Mandy, it was a blink of an eye. And how dare you? (laughs) I know. So sometimes I do find history a little boring. And other times I find it really fascinating and fun to kind of dive into. And this is one of those times. So don't worry, we're not going to give you this really boring snooze fest history lesson this week, but we are going to talk about a historical murder that caused the deaths of 44 people on a United Airlines flight in 1955. The plane went down near Longmont, Colorado, and before we get into the details of this story, we're going to tell you a little about Longmont in this week's segment of We Googled This City. Longmont, Colorado is located in northern Colorado and as of the 2010 census has a population of around 86,000 residents. Mandy, do you know, I don't even know why this just came in my head, do you know the states that border Colorado? Like, you know Arizona, right? Right. Do you know the northern ones? One of them blew my mind and I have not recovered and I feel like it's a is one Mandela Utah? effect. One is Utah, but Wyoming is one. Oh, really? Did you have any, I had no concept that they were even. I guess probably I thought within, Wyoming was a different location on the map entirely. <laughs> that's. I'm telling you, this is a Mandela thing. I think I just looked at it, and anytime I read about these states, I'm always like, "Wait, what?" I, I always learn something. I truly do, and that's more an insult <laughs> to my education than anything else. <laughs> so, back in the early 1900s, a man by the name of James Cash Penny lived in Longmont. Back then, he began a meat market where his largest customer, and really the only one that was keeping his entire business afloat, was a hotel in the area. The chef at that time said he would use James to order all of his meat from for the hotel, as long as when James brought in the meat, he would also tip him with a bottle of bourbon. So James did this once, decided, I'm not going to do this again. And I looked it up. This was not during Prohibition. This was a few years before. And so the chef decided, I'm not going to buy your meat anymore, and I'm going to find somewhere else. And thus, James's whole meat market, which is a funny thing to say, quickly closed down. So not to worry, Mandy. Just a short while later, he opened up a new store, which went on to be called J.C. Penney's. James Penny, J.C. Penney's. Yeah, this is the guy that made J.C. Penney's. Or thanks to a coin shortage in the U.S., it's now called J.C. We'll be keeping the change. (laughs) So 
<laughs> They're not great. Back in 1905, Colorado actually went through three different governors in one day. I found this fact super, super fascinating. So there was a Democrat by the name of Alva Adams, and he was forced to resign due to election improprieties. And so at the time, they said, fine, but you're going to you're gonna be replaced by the Republican who ran against you named James Peabody. So the only way this guy would resign is if <laughs> once Peabody became the governor, he resigned immediately, making his lieutenant governor, Jesse McDonald's, the governor. So that day they had three governors in a row. Wow. And this is a level, yeah, this is a level of petty that I just can't even understand. I love it so much that the only thing that even comes close is, did you ever hear about the time where 50 Cent bought 200 seats at a Ja Rule concert? And he <laughs> literally did it so they would be empty. So when Ja Rule came out to do a concert, the first 200 <laughs> seats were totally empty. <laughs> I love that story so much. But that's what this reminds me of. Sure, I'll resign, but you, you're going to resign immediately after. Right. So it all worked out well. So <laughs> la <laughs> last fact, Colorado is the home of one of the most important places in the world. Dare I say the most important place in the world. Some call it the eighth wonder of the world, a place so special that was founded in 1993 in Denver and is to this day a place that's so revered. Generations will speak its name and tears will fall from their eyes when they say together in unison, yes, I know guac is extra. Denver was the home of Chipotle. And so I thought that would make you really happy, Mandy. It does. <laughs> <laughs> and Denver is not the city, but it's Colorado and I just grab facts from everywhere. So there you go, Mandy. Chipotle. Home in Colorado. <laughs> Colorado's home. I love that. I did know that it originated in Colorado. I didn't know that it was in Denver. But yes, I love that very fun fact because I am a big Chipotle supporter. Most of these jokes are just for you or for me. And if everybody else hates them, that's okay. <laughs> I know. I can't, I can't wait for all the people to write to us and email and write to me telling me that other burrito joints are superior to Chipotle. But oh, please yeah, just yeah. don't. I don't feel like arguing with you today. <laughs> so About yeah, the no, superiority I of, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. We will and not Stacey back down from P, this fight. our third mom, she also loves Chipotle. And we have a, a team going. And we, we just go around fighting people on the internet who try and say, like, Moe's is better. And it's just not. So, yeah, save the emails. I'm team Chipotle forever. <laughs> <laughs> save the emails. We don't want it. Chipotle yeah. or bust. Right. All right. Here we go. So try to imagine the sheer panic that you would feel if you were sitting on your couch watching I Love Lucy and you suddenly heard the horrifying sounds of explosions happening nearby. Now try to imagine walking outside to see that there are pieces of an airplane along with the bodies of countless victims all over the ground. It almost sounds like the beginning of a gripping thriller movie, but this is a true story about what happened to residents near Longmont, Colorado on November 1st, 1955 at around 7.03 that evening. Within minutes of the shocking accident, hundreds of calls flooded into the Longmont Police Department. Residents were reporting what appeared to be a plane crash of some sort. Firefighters and investigators responded to the crash site where they quickly got to work trying to put out the flames engulfing what was left of the aircraft. Unfortunately, due to fuel and oil saturating the ground nearby, the fire was burning hot and steady, and it would end up taking three days for them to extinguish. As the firemen worked, officials searched the area for any signs of life, but there were no survivors to be found. 
In a devastating scene, dozens of bodies of the passengers on board appeared to have been ejected from the plane and most landed on their backs while some were still seat belted into their seats. Thousands showed up to see what happened and many helped search for all the victims. The bodies that were recovered from the crash were taken to a temporary morgue located in the National Guard Armory in Greeley, Colorado. Doesn't that sound kind of like that scene in Breaking Bad? I don't want to give anything away. Yes, but when it there does. Is a plane crash and the pink little bear that was floating and stuff. I can see yes. that. Ooh, gives me the heebie-jeebies. So investigators learned that the plane that had crashed was United Airlines Flight 629. Flight 629 traveled daily from New York City to Seattle, making stops in Chicago, Denver, and Portland along the way, and a new crew would board in Chicago and Denver. On this particular day, the flight was 11 minutes late getting into Denver due to delays on the ground, but when they finally landed, they got refueled and checked over. The plane was given a clean inspection, and there was no maintenance work needed to continue the flight plan for the day. It's unknown what the exact capacity of this particular airplane was, but depending on the model, it could have held anywhere between 52 to 102 people. According to federal regulations, two of those people had to be pilots on the plane, and there had to be one flight engineer as well. On this day, the crew was made up of five United employees, and there were 39 passengers that boarded the flight in Denver, expecting about a two-and-a-half-hour flight to Portland. The flight took off from Stapleton Airport in Denver at 6.52 p.m. Stapleton Airport was later replaced with the Denver International Airport in 1995, but back in the 1950s, Stapleton was the primary airport in Denver. And we have a whole Patreon episode about the Denver Airport, right? The Denver Airport. Oh, oh there is theories. so much to say about the Denver Airport. That is just, yes, go. It's on Patreon, but yes, I could just talk about that all day, this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember a blue horse and it freaked me out. That's all I've got. Blucifer. <laughs> oh, Blucifer. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's punny. I mean, I it's it. creepy. It has red it eyes. Is. It's very creepy. <laughs> and it's a blue horse. I mean, take away the eyes and it's still a blue horse. There's a lot not going right there. So just 11 minutes after this plane took off, a sudden explosion ripped through the cabin and blasted the plane into pieces in the air. The plane crashed into a sugar beet farm near Longmont. Everyone on board the flight died instantly. The immediate thought was that something had tragically malfunctioned with this specific plane that caused it to explode mid-flight. From November 2nd to November 7th, a special laboratory expert went to the crash site and conducted a, quote, visual examination and collected pieces of wreckage, end quote. All the debris was spread out in an area that was six square miles large. The tail end of the plane had been completely severed from the front end, and the brake was so clean it looked like someone had simply cut it off with a knife. The tail on the plane was found a mile and a half from where the nose and engines were, which hit the ground mostly intact, and they were recovered. The fuselage, which is the main body of the plane, was scattered widely around the area between where the tail and the nose were found. In the search, investigators found five pieces of sheet metal, but they couldn't be readily identified as part of the plane or part of the cargo. These pieces of metal were badly burned and covered in a gray soot-like substance, which, according to experts, might normally be associated with residue from an explosion. One of the metal pieces was red with blue letters that said HO on it. This was later identified as part of a hotshot six-volt battery, which is important to note because that will come up again later. Much of the wreckage was found to have what they called foreign deposits on them. These deposits were made from sodium carbonate, nitrate, and sulfur, which are commonly found in explosives such as dynamite. 
During the initial investigation, engineers with United Airlines inspected all the parts of the plane to really try to get a feel for what happened. They found, quote, no possible cause of an explosion due to malfunction of any part of the plane, end quote. And on November 7th, the chief of investigations of the Civil Aeronautics Board made an official statement that there were indications of sabotage. He then asked the FBI to assist with a criminal investigation, which they did. And the FBI investigation began on November 8th with agents working full time to figure out what happened on Flight 629. So it's worth mentioning and noting that air travel today is not at all the way it was back in 1955 when this story took place. The 1950s and 60s are considered the golden age of flying, and it was really a privilege that was awarded only to those who could afford it. And the experience you got when you took a flight was also much, much different than what you get when you fly somewhere today. Planes didn't fly as fast, and some flights back then took as long as two weeks with as many as 42 different stops along the way. No thank you. There were some other pretty stark differences in the onboard experience back then too. During this time, there was no such thing as economy class or business class or even first class. There was one class, and it was pretty lavish. Late night flights included a bed made up for you, aisles were wider, leg room was abundant, I'll take that, and your seat reclined at least twice as much as a typical airplane seat today, which I even think it's crap that they even say that you can move your seat back because you can't oh my move gosh. it back more than like two degrees and then the person like behind two you inches, is yeah. ready to stab you. Right. Yeah, no thank you. So flying wasn't just looked at as a means to get to a destination, it was really an entire experience. Flight attendants, or as they called them back then, stewardesses, were all women who had been chosen for the job based on their looks, and some airlines even required that they be single in order to have the job. There were even requirements on how much they were allowed to weigh and what type of outfit they wore, commonly short skirts and even corsets and always a hat, which makes oh sense. Oh my gosh, as I you know. you need all those things for a job where you're serving people food and drinks. So this was, of course, also in the era where smoking was permitted on airplanes. And if you thought it was just the air hostesses that were dressed to the nines, think again. Passengers on planes back then didn't throw on their most comfortable pair of yoga pants and sling a pillow around their necks. Everyone wore their absolute best attire to travel by plane. Men wore whole suits and women wore dresses with heels and elegant jewelry. My brother-in-law, Christian, who listens to this show, and if he doesn't, I'll find out after I say this, he, whenever he flies, he like dresses nicely. Like my sister will be in yoga pants and he dresses nicely because he says that sometimes they'll upgrade you like if they have spots. And I think it happened one time to him and he's holding on to that for the rest of his life. So he's yeah. He's flown like from Malaysia in nice clothes. What are you doing, buddy? Just just wear some yoga pants like the rest of us. <laughs> I know. Well, I've heard that 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 used to be a thing that you would get upgraded. I feel like I just don't know I mean, you, if it's happened once to him, then I guess it might still be a thing. But I have flown with my grandmother kind of recently, and she does the same thing. She dresses nicely for a flight and is like appalled that I would wear, you know, sweatpants <laughs> to get on a plane. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, it was definitely different back then. But I, I've heard of other people who still dress up for, for taking a flight. I mean, I guess I understand it. But yeah, if that's what you were kind of like raised to believe that you're supposed to do. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's got at least one experience where it happened, so I'll give it to him. But still, I don't think I'd even appreciate it that much. I appreciate my yoga pants way more right. <laughs> than anything else. But essentially, commercial airplanes at this time were more like an airborne party bus. 
But the flight experience wasn't the only thing that was totally different from what we see today. When it came to airport security, there really was just no such thing. Some people probably know, and some of the younger listeners may not, but the TSA did not exist until fairly recently. It was actually established after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, so we're talking about a time that was 46 years earlier than that. It really didn't take much to get through airport security in those days. Security measures were operated by the airline company themselves, and the standard check was having the passenger walk through a very weak metal detector, followed by being wanted by a security officer. But there was no removing of shoes or putting your bags through a scanner, and certainly no body scanners. For the most part, you could just walk right onto the plane with anything at all in your carry-on. But up until the mid-1950s, at the time of our story, none of that was really a big deal because nobody had ever turned a plane into a weapon in that way, so no one considered that anyone ever would. But that's exactly what the investigation into the crash pointed to. And we're going to get right back into what happens next after one quick break to hear word from this week's sponsors. You know that great feeling after you leave the chair of the dentist after a cleaning? And you know how six months later you'll get that feeling again? But what if your mouth could feel that way every time you brush your teeth? With Bruce, you can make that dream a reality. Bruce is the modern electric toothbrush that not only keeps your teeth cleaner, but does it without breaking the bank. No matter how great you think you're brushing your teeth, Bruce does it even better with over 31,000 brush movements in a minute, which is more than 100 times faster than manual brushing. I love my new Bruce. I had bought a different electric toothbrush a few months ago, and while I liked it, it's nowhere near as effective as my Bruce. Plus, Bruce isn't just an on-off toothbrush. It has six unique cleaning modes like gentle, one for whitening, plus it pulsates to tell you when to change quadrants so my teeth get an even and amazing cleaning every time. Bruce has a magnetic USB charging station, a four-week battery life, and even a really nice and durable case for traveling. Plus they actually look really good, which I know seems kind of strange for a toothbrush, but I have what I refer to as my 007 toothbrush that looks clean, sleek, and leaps and bounds better than any other toothbrush I've ever owned. If you're looking to up your brushing game and getting more bang for your buck, check out Bruce. You get a 90-day risk-free return period. Plus, Bruce has hundreds of five-star reviews and a two-year warranty, so don't take our word for it. Try it for yourself. Get 15% off your Bruce kit when you use promo code MOMS at Bruce.com. That's B-R-U-U-S-H dot com, promo code MOMS. We are all unique individuals, and not one of us is exactly like the other. So why is so much of our beauty routine one size fits all? Function of Beauty gets that we're all different, and they celebrate our differences. We've been using our Function of Beauty custom shampoo and conditioners for a while now, and I'll never go back to the -the off-the-shelf stuff again. But Function of Beauty hasn't stopped there. They're taking their customization a step further, and they now offer customizable body wash and lotion. Their new tailored body wash and lotion are designed for your skin moisture levels and other preferences you may have. And just like with their shampoo and conditioner, you can pick your favorite color and fragrance, including Strike a Rose, Perfection, and True Lavender, or you can opt for no fragrance. And just like all Function of Beauty's formulas, they not only use clean ingredients, but they're cruelty-free and every bottle is created so that you get exactly what you need, not only to look good, but to feel your best. I just took the Function of Beauty skin quiz online to see which body wash and lotion would work best for me, and I just ordered mine and can't wait to check it out. My shampoo and conditioner from Function of Beauty and Striker Rose Scent was made just for me, and it's been flawless at keeping my hair silky smooth without looking greasy, which was the problem I was having before with other stuff. So I can't wait to see how great they do with their lotion and body wash. So what are you waiting for? 
Go to functionofbeauty.com slash moms to take your four-part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash moms for 20% off and to let them know you heard about it from our show. That's functionofbeauty.com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were just talking about how the FBI had taken over the investigation into this mysterious plane explosion that killed all 44 passengers on board the plane. When the FBI took over the case, they assigned agents to specific duties, such as speaking with eyewitnesses and the flight crews that worked on the plane prior to the crash. So remember, they changed crews twice that day already before the plane left Denver. Some of the agents were assigned to tracing all the cargo, mail, and luggage on the plane, while others searched the wreckage and recovered baggage or personal items belonging to passengers. While going through this process, the agents were also looking for, of course, any leads or any clues as to what might have happened. During the very early days of the investigation, officers interviewed 200 people from a 140-square-mile radius of the crash site. 37 of those people actually gave the investigators some useful information about what they saw. The statements given by those people were handed over to the FBI for their review. What they determined after reading the statements was that the plane had been flying normally when suddenly there was an explosion of, quote, tremendous force. Witnesses stated that it looked like fiery streamers falling from the plane and that they saw a flare from the plane ignite and fall to the ground. There was a second explosion when the engines and forward section of the plane hit the ground, which was most likely due to the fuel tanks exploding. One of the air traffic controllers in the tower at Stapleton Airport said that he saw two flashes of light and the flare at 7.03 p.m. He said the flashes were white and one was brighter than the other, that they lasted 30 to 45 seconds, and that he saw a shorter flash near the ground. He immediately attempted to make contact with all planes in the Denver area, and they all responded except for Flight 629. The FBI used this information to narrow down the location of the explosion, and they estimated that it was around eight miles east of Longmont, Colorado. They believed that the plane was around 5,782 feet above the ground when it exploded. To better understand what might have happened on board, all the wreckage from the central part of the plane was taken to a Stapleton Airport warehouse, along with the baggage, the cargo, and personal effects. The FBI created a full-size mock-up of the central section of the plane out of wood and wire netting, and all the parts of the plane were wired to the mock-up in their correct locations. This was really just like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. It's so fascinating to me that they really just set up a a replica of this to kind of go through almost like you see in movies where they're trying to yeah. really figure out this whole puzzle and, and being able to visually see it is going to help them, you know, further along in this. It's also interesting to me to hear about kind of how their process was, because this is so this is obviously a different time. So the methods yeah. that the FBI, you know, uses their technique for finding information and kind of doing this sort of thing is so different now than it would have been in 1955. But it yeah. is crazy that they like did this process of making this mock up and everything. I just find that part interesting to see what things we still do that they did back then and kind of what things we've replaced with better technology and all that. So yeah, yeah. really interesting to kind of see how they pieced it together. For sure. So the mock up was useful and helped the FBI determine that the explosion went off in the rear cargo pit. They immediately looked into the waybills for the air freight shipments on board, but they found nothing in the shipments that was flammable or explosive. 
Not only that, but when the plane had landed in Denver that day, all of the cargo and freight was moved from the rear to the forward cargo pit, and the rear cargo pit only had baggage and cargo in it. Investigators also recovered pieces of mail that they sent to the postal inspectors to look for any evidence. All 44 of the people on board the flight were individually investigated, as well as anyone that was supposed to be on that flight but canceled, or anyone that didn't make the flight that day. They were looking for any clues at all to suggest that someone on the plane wanted someone else dead. Descriptions of passenger baggage and baggage contents were also being investigated. We mentioned earlier that they found pieces of metal from the plane that had a, quote, foreign residue that was on them, consistent with what you might find in an explosive. So they were looking for any baggage that was more severely damaged or that was coated with the residue. Another thing investigators were doing was pouring through the personal effects recovered after the crash. Throughout this process, agents found a large quantity of personal items that belonged to one passenger in particular named Daisy King. They found personal letters, newspaper clippings about her family, a checkbook, $1,000 in traveler checks, an address list, and two keys and a receipt for a safety deposit box that she had rented. We'll come back to Daisy King, but first we want to mention some of the other passengers that were on board Flight 629 that tragically lost their lives. The five crew members on board were 39-year-old Captain Lee H. Hall, who had been working for United for 13 years. He was married to a stewardess, and they lived in Seattle. There was also First Officer Donald A. White, a married 26-year-old who'd been with United for four years. The flight engineer on board that day was Samuel F. Arthur. He was a first officer and also a flight engineer who had been working for United for nine years. He was 38 years old, married, and had two young children. There were also two stewardesses on the flight named Peggy Lou Petticord and Jacqueline Hines, And Peggy was just 22 years old and had recently graduated college and had only been working on United flights for six months. Jacqueline was a 26-year-old young woman who'd been working for United for four years. Also among those on board were five military servicemen and six people who were employed in defense plants during World War II. Two of the passengers were U.S. government employees. We don't have the names of every person that died that day, but they were all men and women with their own stories and lives and families. There were several passengers on the flight who were just flying for the first time, some who were on their way to visit family and others who left their children behind for a vacation. Harold Sandstead was a doctor and nutrition expert with the U.S. Public Health Service that was on his way to speak at Oregon State College. Jesse Sizemore was an airman second class who had been on leave and was flying back to Alaska Air Force Base. Leela McLean was the oldest passenger at 81 years old. She was headed home to Portland after visiting her stepson in Connecticut. Everybody on the flight had a destination and an expectation that they would get where they were going that day. During the investigation, agents looked into which of the victims had, quote, large amounts of trip insurance, end quote, that were taken out before this particular flight, and they found something that stood out to them. One passenger that we mentioned before, named Daisy King, had three different trip insurance policies taken out on her. Two of them were in the amount of $6,250, which are equal to about $60,000 today, and they were to be paid out to Daisy's daughter, Helen, and also to Daisy's sister. But there was a third, and this one was a much larger insurance policy, for $37,500, which is about $358,000 today. And this insurance policy was to be paid out to Daisy's son, Jack, and the policy information had been mailed to Jack as well. 
So we're going to backtrack just a little bit and talk about who Daisy and her family were. Daisy was born on March 9, 1902 in Buena Vista, Colorado. She was raised in the country until 1916 when her family moved to Denver. She was considered a quote-unquote tomboy who spent a lot of time outside fishing and riding. She obtained a high school diploma and quickly married Tom Gallagher. Two years later, they welcomed their daughter Helen, but the couple later divorced. Daisy then married William Graham in 1929. Despite the 30-year age difference between them, they started a family of their own and had a son named Jack in early 1932. William passed away either three or five years after Jack's birth. Their sources were kind of conflicting on when exactly he died, but we can only imagine how difficult it was for Daisy to raise Jack without his father. She was very poor following William's death, so she began working at a phone company while her mom took care of Jack and Helen. She babysat the grandkids until she died in 1938. Daisy then enrolled Helen in a college prep school and sent Jack to Clayton College, which wasn't really a college at all. It was actually an orphanage. At the time, which was in the 1930s, the orphanage accepted children who had lost both parents or who had just lost their father. So Jack really struggled while he was there. In one report, the orphanage said, quote, Jack is very unhappy and depressed at times, has trouble getting along with other children and adults, careless with people's possessions, clamors for undue attention, rebellious when not given, feels mother does not love him because he was put in an institution, end quote. While Jack was away, Daisy met and married her third husband, John or Earl King, in 1941. Earl was a wealthy rancher, but even though Daisy now had money, she still did not get her son Jack out of the orphanage. Although his teacher said that he had a fine mind with, quote, generally high grades, Jack only finished up the ninth grade, and it was noted that his, quote, personal and social adjustments were very poor. When Jack was just 15 years old, he moved to Alaska and started working in construction, which it always blows my mind when you hear about these kind of things. And you always hear about this in older times, like in the 30s and 40s, that people were working these real adult jobs when they were like 14 and 15 years old. So because, of course, now there's labor laws about letting children do certain types of work and for how long and all that. So I just always am blown away in these stories because 15 feels so young. I didn't feel young at 15, but like now that my oldest son is getting into that preteen age, I'm like, oh my gosh, in just a few more years, like he'll be 15. I can't imagine him going and moving to Alaska and getting a construction job. It just sounds crazy. It does. So Jack kept this job for about a year before leaving in 1948 after he enlisted in the Coast Guard in Seattle. He actually served in the Coast Guard from April 1948 to January 1949. But he was actually AWOL for 63 days of his service. He still did get an honorable discharge as a motorman third class. The reason for his discharge was because he had fraudulently enlisted at just 16 years old. After his short stint in the Coast Guard, Jack went back to Alaska and continued working in construction. From January 1953 to December of 1954, he was a heavy-duty equipment mechanic. He did end up getting a high school diploma later after he passed the entrance exams at Denver University, where he attended for one year before he met a woman named Gloria, who he eventually married on June 14, 1953. A little over a year later, in October of 1954, Daisy's husband Earl died from heart disease, and that's when she finally reached out to Jack and brought him back into her life. 
Earl had left his entire estate to Daisy, and Daisy had also recently inherited life insurance from her father, so she was living really comfortably with around $150,000 between the inheritances, which is equal to around $1.5 million today. At this point in time, Daisy offered to buy Jack and his family a house if they would move to Denver to be closer to her. There was just one small catch, and that was that Daisy wanted to live there with him too. Jack and Gloria took her up on the offer and moved to Denver. In the spring of 1955, Daisy bought some property and had a drive-in restaurant built on it, which she called Crown A Drive-In. The restaurant served hot dogs, burgers, ice cream, and more, and Daisy hired Jack as the manager. But just a couple months after opening, vandals severely damaged the windows at the drive-in, and in September of 1955, there was an explosion and a fire there. A fire examiner found that someone had disconnected a gas line connection, and when the gas reached the water heater's pilot light, an explosion occurred. There were $3 missing from the register, and some of the furniture was destroyed. All in all, there was equivalent to about $11,000 in damage. Daisy later opened a second drive-in restaurant in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, called Dairy King. In the two and a half years that Jack and Gloria had been married and moved in with Daisy, they had two children. At the time of the plane explosion that took Daisy's life, the kids were just 20 months and nine months old. When investigators realized that Jack was the beneficiary of such a high insurance policy on his mom, they took a particular interest in him and wanted to dig more into his background. They learned that Jack and Daisy didn't always have the best relationship, and they fought often. But despite that, Daisy did have him listed as the beneficiary to a sizable inheritance in the event of her death. They also found some things in Jack's past that seemed a little shady at best. There was evidence that he'd been stealing money from the drive-in restaurant business, and the fact that there was an explosion in the building that he managed was definitely also suspicious. They also learned that within the last few months, Jack had purchased a new truck, which he soon parked on the train track so he would have a train run into it and he could collect the insurance on it. Lastly, they looked into Jack's criminal history, and what they found was a little unsettling. As it turned out, Jack did have a rap sheet. In March of 1951, while working at a manufacturing business as a payroll clerk, he stole checks and filled out 42 different checks for $100 each, which would be about $1,000 each today. Jack had forged the owner's name and then cashed the checks at different Denver locations, and he was successful at cashing about $4,200 in checks or about $42,000 today, which is so crazy that you can get away with cashing that many forged checks before you get caught. He immediately bought a $2,000 convertible and left Denver, so this would be like a $20,000 car. Then in September of 1951, he was caught bootlegging in Lubbock, Texas. When they went to arrest him, he ran through a roadblock and fired shots at officers. When he was finally caught, he was sentenced to 60 days in jail. And after he served that time, he went back to Denver to face charges for the 42 forged checks. For that crime, he was convicted and sentenced to five years of probation. While he was on probation, he had no legal problems and he stayed out of trouble. Once the FBI had gathered as much information as they could on Jack, it was time to bring him in to interview him themselves. Jack told investigators about his personal background, where he grew up, where he worked, etc. He even mentioned that there had been an explosion at his mother's drive-in restaurant and told investigators that his truck stalled on a railroad track and was hit by a train. Investigators also asked Jack what his mother was up to on November 1st and what her luggage looked like. 
Jack told them that Daisy was flying to Alaska, and he described what her luggage looked like, but told them that he didn't know anything about what she carried inside because his mom never let anyone help her pack, but that he did know that she had plans to hunt in Alaska, and she had a lot of shotgun shells and rifle ammunition with her. Investigators interviewed Jack's wife, Gloria, on November 11th. She talked about her background with Jack and their children. When they started asking her about Daisy's luggage, she provided the same exact explanation that her husband had, that Daisy didn't let anyone help her pack, so she couldn't attest to anything that she would have inside the bag. She did tell the agents that before Daisy left on November 1st, Jack had given her a present. Gloria said that she thought the present was a set of tools that Daisy could use to turn seashells into art. Jack brought the gift into the house and took it down to the basement to give to Daisy while she was packing. The package was wrapped up like a gift and was around 18 inches long, 14 inches wide, and 3 inches deep. Gloria said that she believed that this was a tool set, but she wasn't positive. The same day they interviewed Gloria, they also interviewed a neighbor of one of Jack's relatives. The neighbor told them that before Daisy left, the neighbor noticed that Jack was extremely interested in buying a toolkit for Daisy and that she heard through the grapevine that Jack had given Daisy the tool set before she left. This tool set is a big deal (laughs) of gossip in this town. The neighbor also heard that after Daisy left to catch her flight, Jack, quote, became very ill and his face turned white, end quote. When Jack heard someone say there had been a plane crash, Jack said, quote, that is it, end quote. After the news of the crash, Jack couldn't eat or sleep, and he just paced back and forth inside and outside the house. On November 12th, Gloria was asked to come back to the FBI's office to help identify some of Daisy's luggage. She was able to identify pieces from the suitcase and canvas bag. Later that day, Jack was questioned further. He was asked about the gift that he allegedly gave his mom before her flight. What he told them didn't match up with what his wife Gloria had said about the tool set. Jack said that he wanted to buy the tool set, but he couldn't find one, so he didn't get one. But it was possible that Gloria thought that he did. I guess they didn't have a conversation where he said, I didn't get the tool set. So when Jack was asked why he mailed the $37,000 trip insurance policy that was taken out on Daisy at the airport to himself, he really had no explanation. He told them that after Daisy left to catch her plane, he and his wife Gloria and their son went to an airport coffee shop and had dinner. But after they ate, Jack said he got sick and went to the bathroom. His upset stomach, he said, was from the excitement of Daisy's trip and from the coffee shop food. I get the coffee shop food. I don't really understand Daisy's trip making you sick to your stomach, but okay. Well, yeah, I mean, and I've never been that excited for somebody else to travel. (laughs) I'm so excited. I'm physically ill for you. Yeah, no, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) Yeah. Since Gloria and Jack had conflicting stories, the investigators went to their home to speak with Gloria a little more. But Gloria gave the same story, and she even signed a statement that her story was true and correct. At this point, the investigators let Jack know that his story did not match his wife's and that he was now a suspect in this airplane explosion. Jack fully cooperated with the FBI and agreed to give a statement, take a lie detector test, and even sign consent forms to search his home and car and property. During the searches, they found a copy of the insurance policy on Daisy, but there were no copies of the other two insurance policies. A small roll of copper wire with yellow insulation was found in Jack's work clothes. This was suspicious because it matched the same type of wire that was used in the bomb's detonating caps. 
When the investigators told Jack that they found evidence of a bomb at the crash site, Jack finally caved. He told them that his mother had been very critical of him and that she was upset that he wasn't making any money at the drive-in. So that's why he caused the explosion there at the drive-in so that he could collect insurance money. He also admitted that he intentionally left his truck on the railroad tracks for insurance money as well. And as this conversation continued, Jack opened up more and eventually admitted that he was responsible for the airplane bombing. He told investigators that he put the bomb together with 25 sticks of dynamite, two electric primer caps, a timer, and a six-volt battery. His motive, he said, was insurance money. He wanted to kill his mom so that he could collect her insurance and his inheritance. After giving this statement to the FBI, Jack signed it. And we are going to get into the conclusion of this story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Sometimes I feel like I watch the same three things over and over again. And listen, I'm not complaining, but sometimes I really just want to mix it up. And that's why I'm super excited about Acorn TV. Acorn TV is a subscription streaming service that gets you everything you want and more with mysteries, dramas, comedies, and even documentaries from all around the world. And all are commercial free. I'm in the second season now of The Worst Week of My Life on Acorn TV, and I love it. It's just such a fun and hilarious watch and not a show I can find anywhere else. I love that I can watch it on any device, and I watch it a lot on my phone sitting in car line waiting for my daughter to get out of school. I'm excited to check out the Acorn TV original show, Mystery Road. The show takes place in the Australian outback and stars Oscar nominee Judy Davis, who teams up to investigate the mysterious disappearance of two young boys. It's in its second season, and I can't wait to dive right in. You can get these shows and so much more premium, commercial-free, international content for just $5.99 a month, Plus, Acorn TV adds new content every Monday, so you know you'll always get new and exciting stuff to watch. There's already thousands of hours of binge-worthy shows to watch, so you can get started right away. Escape to Britain and beyond without leaving your seat. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and using our promo code MOMS. That's acorn.tv code MOMS to get your first 30 days for free. I was late to the wireless earbud game. I've used traditional headphones for years because I was worried wireless earbuds wouldn't be comfortable or that the battery would die when I was in the middle of listening. But Raycon has made me forget all about my hangups and embrace my new earbuds wholeheartedly because Raycon's newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet. They are incredibly comfortable, so much so that I don't even notice I have them in my ears. Plus, they have six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, a noise isolating fit, and much more. I love to wear my Raycon earbuds when I'm making dinner or cleaning or while I'm walking around the grocery store. I'll keep one in my ear so I can escape and listen to a podcast while I can still hear my kids and answer a million questions they may have. I even put an earbud in while I'm going to sleep at night. My husband wants to watch something on TV and maybe I'd rather listen to a recap of Real Housewives to lull me to sleep. My earbuds are so easy to carry around. I just throw them on my purse and listen whenever I can. The audio quality is phenomenal, plus my ears don't hurt like they did when I used traditional headphones or when I'd accidentally rip a headphone out of my ear. Give them a try for yourself. You can try them out with Raycon's 45-day free return policy, so you can make sure they're the perfect pair of wireless earbuds for you. For a limited time, get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash momsandmurder. That's buyraycon.com slash momsandmurder for a special 15% discount on Raycon wireless earbuds. Make sure to check it out now while the deal's running. 
buyraycon.com slash moms and murder. And now back to the episode. So before the break, Jack Graham had just admitted to the FBI that he was the one responsible for making the bomb that blew up the United Airlines Flight 629, killing all 44 passengers on board. He did this specifically to kill his mom so that he could collect her insurance money. On November 14, 1955, Jack was formally charged with sabotage at the federal level. At the time, the maximum sentence possible for sabotaging an airplane was just 10 years. This case is actually really interesting because it's hard to imagine a time when there was no outlined laws for this sort of thing. But since airline travel was still fairly new and there had never been this type of incident, there were no specific federal laws for bombing a commercial airliner. Prosecutors handed this case off to the state of Colorado so that Jack could be prosecuted for murder as well as sabotage. If convicted of murder, he would have a maximum sentence of death. On November 17th, Jack was officially charged with the murder of Daisy King in Colorado State Court. He was denied bail, and he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Another interesting thing in this case is that Jack was only prosecuted for Daisy's murder and not the other 43 victims. The reason was because prosecutors wanted to convict Jack as quickly as possible so that any potential copycats out there would see what the consequences were, and because prosecuting 44 separate deaths could take a really, really long time to do. While the state was putting together their case against Jack, they worked to find out where he bought the bomb materials. They learned that he had purchased a 60-minute on-type type timing device in Denver less than a week before the bombing. He told the employee where he bought it that he worked for the Colorado, Texas Pump Company. A few days later, he exchanged the on-type timer to an off-type one. Do you know what that means, Melissa? (laughs) I do. No, I can't search for any more things on the internet. It's just not good. But sometimes words are so simple, it's like you're never going to find. It's like the band live. I'm always wondering, how do people look up the band live? Like, how do you look up live band? You're never going to find the answer. I know that's so true. I tried looking up like on type and off type timers. And then like, I realized that that probably didn't look great on my search history. And I I did find like some explanation, but I didn't understand it. I'm just not like a device timer science mathematics (laughs) kind of person. So I didn't understand. So maybe somebody else can explain it in layman's terms what it actually is. There you go. I don't think it's important. Personally, he made a bomb. So I mean, That's what he did. I don't know. I don't know how the timer actually worked. (laughs) There you go. Investigators also found a store manager who remembered selling 20 to 25 sticks of dynamite and two electric blasting caps to a man in October of 1955. The manager was able to identify Jack in a lineup as the man who bought these items. It was also learned that Jack approached an electric company owner in October and offered to work for him for a very low wage of $1.50 $1.50 an hour, which would be like $14 an hour today, so that he could just simply gain experience in the field. Jack was hired on, but he only worked there for a week. On his last day there, Jack asked the manager what timing devices he used. Specifically, Jack was looking for a timer that could be used with a battery and that wouldn't succeed for more than two hours. The owner then told Jack where he could go to purchase such a timer. What ended up being another nail in the coffin for Jack was that his half-sister, Helen, didn't have very positive things to say about him to the FBI. She told them that she hadn't been comfortable around Jack for the last several years since he'd come back into the picture and that he had, 
quote, pent up violence. She said that she didn't even want to be near him. She believed that her brother, quote, wasn't mentally sound. They had also had their scuffles that went beyond the typical sibling rivalry. Once, Jack actually knocked Helen down and kneed her in the chest so hard that her ribs were actually injured. In another instance, Jack threatened to hit her with a hammer and she had to lock herself in a room to get away from him. Helen had also witnessed the physical abuse of Gloria at the hands of her brother. One night in the summer of 1955, Jack awoke and Gloria wasn't in bed with him, but he ended up finding her at the table playing cards with Daisy and Helen, and out of nowhere, Helen said that Jack got mad and began hitting his wife Gloria. Their mother, Daisy, was scared that Jack was going to turn his rage at her and start hitting her next. Helen also said that Jack had a pretty sick sense of humor. At some point after the crash that killed their mom, Jack said to Helen and Gloria, quote, can't you just see those shotgun shells going off in the plane every which way and the pilots, passengers and grandma jumping around, end quote. Oh my gosh. Which is, I agree, a very disturbing thing that you would say after something like this has happened. Yeah. So before Jack could stand trial, he had to undergo a psychiatric evaluation to determine whether or not he was fit to be tried. In one interview, Jack claimed that he had falsely confessed to bombing the airplane and that he got this idea for the fake confession after seeing photos of agents digging up explosives in World War II. However, four different psychiatrists found Jack legally sane. On February 10, 1956, about three months after the bombing, Jack attempted to take his own life with a garrote made of socks that he had twisted tightly around a piece of rolled cardboard. A guard found him with a garrote tied around his neck, barely clinging to life. The guard loosened the garrote and called for help. The doctor who tended to Jack after this event put him on a sedative and had him placed in a straitjacket. Jack was then sent to the psychiatric ward where he was strapped down to the bed and had four guards watching him. During his time in the psych ward, Jack opened up to psychiatrists and began confessing more and more. He said that his confession to the FBI was true all along and that he got the idea for the bombing after hearing about a United Airlines crash in Wyoming back in October of 1955. The plane was leaving from Denver and headed to Salt Lake City with 63 passengers and three crew members on board when it crashed into the side of a peak. The pilot at that time had tried to fly over the peak to save time, which is something pilots did commonly, but the weather was not ideal that day and they crashed. A little while later, Jack talked to his friend Carl about this crash, and at some point, Carl showed Jack how to make a bomb of his own. Jack tested it out, and sure enough, it worked. So he bought all the materials necessary to make another bomb, and he kept those materials in his car. He actually didn't put the bomb together until the morning of November 1st, which was the day his mom was taking her flight, which is crazy to me that he waited until that morning to do all this, like such a For huge, sure. massive thing, and he, and he did it that same morning. So he claimed that he then put the bomb in Daisy's suitcase without her knowledge, but that still didn't add up with the story that his wife gave about the wrapped gift. Jack picked up Gloria, Daisy, and his son so that they could head to the airport to drop Daisy off. He dropped the three of them off at the airport terminal while he then went to go park the car. And he alleged that when he parked the car and he took Daisy's suitcase out, he set the timer on the bomb for 90 minutes. Keep in mind, Jack purchased a 60-minute timer, so it is really anyone's best guess why he told the psychiatrist that he would set the bomb timer for 90 minutes, because it shouldn't have been right. even possible. Jack said that he wanted the plane to explode over the Medicine Bow Mountains so that it wouldn't be discovered until months later when the snow melted. 
but since the plane had been delayed by 22 minutes, his plan was thrown off. And that is also really crazy to me. I didn't mention this earlier when we were talking about the air traffic controller that was in the tower that was able to see the flashes when this plane exploded and how like that may not have been the case if the plane had taken off sooner and was over mountains farther away and out of the sight of the tower. I think I've mentioned on the show before, my dad was an air traffic controller. So I've actually had the experience before 9-11 when they actually allowed this. I used to go to work with him sometimes and he would take me up in the tower and it's crazy how far you can actually see when you're up there and how far like those guys can, they can watch planes visually for a really, really long time on a clear day. And of course they have binoculars and everything, but I just thought that was so crazy. The timing, because how much longer it could have taken for them to even realize that this plane went down. If the air traffic controller didn't actually see the flashes from the explosion and then try to contact all the planes in the area, like how long would it have taken for them to figure out where this plane even went down? You know, if it was over mountains and it just is crazy that how it worked out that they were able to even kind of put this together and and find the victims so quickly. Yeah. So Jack said that he attached some web straps around the luggage to help keep things secure in there. And he then took the suitcase to Daisy, who was already inside the airport. The suitcase ended up being 37 pounds overweight. So Daisy paid $27 or the equivalent of $258 for her baggage to be, you know, allowed to go on the plane because it was so heavy. The bomb that nobody knew was inside the suitcase weighed 14 pounds. So this next part is just pretty wild. After Daisy went to get on her plane, Jack went to a vending machine to purchase the trip insurance policy on Daisy. He paid around $1.50 or $14 today for the $37,500 policy, which he listed himself as the beneficiary. So this idea of vending machine insurance policies feels really illegitimate to me, but it really was a thing back then. And it's because people were still really nervous about flying. So they would purchase travel insurance. This type of insurance was so popular and widely sought after that vending machines for this purpose were actually installed in airports. Can you imagine a vending machine purchasing an insurance policy no. at a vending machine? And that would not make me feel better at all about getting a flight if like my husband dropped me off and was like, have a great <laughs> flight. I'm going to hit the vending machine. <laughs> See you on the other side. That is just not comforting at all. Jack told one psychiatrist that he realized the airplane could hold as many as 50 or 60 people, but that he didn't care how many people he killed. He said, quote, it could have been a thousand. When their time comes, there's nothing they can do about it, end quote. This man is a monster. Yeah. Just the things that he says in regards to this crash, it's like, wow, like, do you have any conscience, like, at all? Right. Because that that's just so terrible. It's such a terrible thing to say. So Jack said that he was happy to talk about all of this because he had, quote, been quite conscious stricken. In December of 1955, Jack changed his plea from not guilty by way of insanity to just not guilty. His trial began on April 23rd, 1956 in Denver District Court. There were 231 people in total questioned in the jury pool in this case, the most there had ever been before. The final jury was chosen up of seven men and five women. The trial was really quite a big debacle. There were hundreds of people waiting outside the courtroom in hopes of getting a front row seat. People even packed their lunches because they worried that if they'd leave to get something to eat, that they wouldn't be able to get their spot back. The trial of Jack Gilbert Graham was the first criminal trial to ever be televised. The prosecution laid out all the evidence they found during their investigation and announced that Jack had murdered Daisy, 
quote, coldly, carefully, and deliberately, end quote. They told the jury that the explosion that happened in the cargo pit was caused by dynamite and nothing else, and that the plane was running normally when it left Denver before it exploded just minutes after takeoff. Jack's defense team alleged that everything the FBI said was illegal and that they hadn't read Jack as rights, that his confession was obtained under duress, and that his home was searched without his consent. Jack did not take the stand in this trial, but the prosecution did call eight witnesses that all testified about the events surrounding the bombing. The defense also called eight witnesses, but unfortunately, none of them actually helped Jack's case. On May 5, 1956, the jury deliberated for just 69 minutes. They unanimously voted in favor of a guilty verdict and recommended the death penalty as a sentence. The judge honored the recommendation, and on May 15, 1956, Jack was sentenced to death at the age of 23. It's hard to even believe he was so young. He had already, but I mean, he'd been working in Alaska at 15. I was thinking he was so much older. So although Jack's attorney did file a motion for a new trial, Jack said that they did so against his wishes and that he did not want a new trial or to have his case automatically reviewed by the Colorado Supreme Court. Less than a year after being convicted, Jack was executed in the gas chamber at Colorado State Penitentiary on January 11, 1957. It also blows my mind that he was executed so quickly because that is not something that you see anymore. No, not at all. I mean, I guess part of it was that he didn't want the Supreme Court to hear it and it all moved quickly. But I just think in general, things moved a lot quick. Right. Like this week, what was it? Scott Peterson's death penalty was just overturned. And how long has he been in prison for like 15 years or something? Right. Crazy. Yeah. Before he was executed, he said, quote, everybody pays their way and takes their chances. That's just the way it goes. End quote. He was offered a steak dinner, but all he ate was ice cream for his last meal. He asked the guards to give the rest of his meal to other prisoners on death row. Those present for his execution said that he was, quote, composed and without a sign of emotion. He was in the gas chamber for 12 minutes before he was pronounced dead at 8.08 p.m. After Jack was executed, Gloria changed her name and her kids' names to her maiden name, Elson. She went on to work at the Federal Center in Lakewood, where she stayed until she retired. She did get remarried, but that ended in divorce. Gloria passed away in 1992. She and Jack's son, Alan, got married in 1976. But he and his wife actually disappeared in the Pacific Northwest, and they are presumed dead. The couple's daughter, Suzanne, works as a nurse. So as crazy as it is to think about, this terrible tragedy was really a catalyst that ushered in some of the security measures that we have built upon and still use today, as I said, in terms of airport security. So I learned a little more about this in an article on Consumerist.com titled The Evolution of Airport Security from Carry-On Dynamite to No Liquids Allowed. And I learned that in 1961, the FBI or the airlines themselves could request armed guards on flights. But in the late 60s and early 70s, the FAA began implementing much stricter security requirements. So by that time, 60s and 70s, there had been over 130 successful and attempted airplane hijackings, which is so scary. That's so crazy. So the FAA developed a profile that was used by ticketing agents to determine if a passenger was a threat. So this checklist included people who were exhibiting odd behavior, like a lack of eye contact or little concern for their luggage. So these things would make somebody a potential candidate for additional security screening. So a short time later, the Customs Air Security Officers Program, or what we know of as Sky Marshals, 
was created, and this was followed by using canine units to detect explosives. But even with these new measures, planes were still constantly under threat of hijacking, and even more occurred, including the mysterious case of D.B. Cooper. In 1973, the FAA started requiring X-ray machines, metal detectors, and personal searches to passengers and carry-on baggage. These additions seemed to do the trick, and instances of hijacking decreased substantially, but there was still a lot of room for error and a lot of room for things to really slip through the cracks. For example, friends and family of a passenger were allowed to walk right up to the gate, and security was outsourced and often done by contractors that were making very little pay. So as I mentioned earlier, the TSA wasn't formed until 2001 after the September 11th attacks, as well as the infamous attempted shoe bombing later that same year. So now the experience in airports is much different, and some argue that we still don't have tight enough restrictions when we fly, but airport security is constantly trying to evolve with new technology and ways to make flight travel more secure for everybody. I know I've flown a lot in the last couple of years, and I've noticed now they have their new program that they're pushing. They want everyone to do the clear thing, and it's by your fingerprint. So you register, and you give them your fingerprint, and then... Basically, you are your boarding pass and your own ID. So you, when you go to check in, you just scan your fingerprint. They get your ID pulls up on their screen. They can see your ticket like that you have booked. You know, I think it's great in theory. Personally, it makes me a little uncomfortable for my reasons. But, you know, they are trying to they are using technology to kind yeah. of even further the security measures and everything. But, yeah, it is crazy to think about a time when airport security was so lax because now it's such a big to do when you go to the airport and you have, you know, to go through all the security measures and everything. But I remember when I was younger, being able to have your person who's waiting for you on the other side of a flight, you know, they were just waiting right there when you got off the gate. I remember my grandfather standing there a couple of times when me and my parents would fly to go visit. It's just crazy to even think about that because that would just be so it's weird now. It's such an alien idea that there was just no airport security at one point. Not that long ago. Yeah, for sure. You know what this story kind of reminded me of in the weirdest way? And you have to hear where I'm going with this. Whenever they talk about that, there was just no laws, no federal laws at this time for this kind of crime. And so they really didn't have anything to base it off of. It reminds me now, just as we talked a few months ago, maybe about catfishing and stuff and how basically whenever those things are happening and there's no real mandated law or there's no guidelines yet for somebody's responsibility, right? So if you encourage somebody but you've actually catfished them and they kill somebody whatever but think 10 years from now there's going to be something like this and we'll hear stories about that and think wow I can't believe we ever lived in a time you know what I mean like it's just as things go on with technology like you were saying and stuff all these different things are going to look so different in the future which this makes us sound very old saying (laughs) something as I'm listening to myself speak and moving my glasses down my nose I realize that it makes me sound old but it is so interesting to me that there was just there was no law there that had really been broken that you know that they had that they had established Crazy story, though. It was it was really interesting. Um, yeah. And interesting. It was the first televised one. There was just a lot of interesting stuff in the story. Yeah, for sure. I know. And I guess I never really heard this before. I, hadn't either. I mean, after I started getting into the case and when I was writing it, I was like, huh, I probably I'm so, I was surprised I had never heard of it before, but I never really have looked into, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this was really an interesting one to hear about this week and definitely makes you think about how things are different now and like you said, how things will be different 10 years from now. So yeah, 
it's a little, it's just, I don't know. That kind of stuff blows my mind. It's just weird to think Me about. Too. But anyway, <laughs> so we're going to turn the page and move on to last thing before we go. I have a question that was suggested from the Facebook page or Facebook group, rather. They want to know if we had a chore fairy that came to our house once a day and did one chore that we uh, did one chore for us, rather, that we didn't have to do ourselves. What would you choose for the chore fairy to do for you? So this obviously needs to be like a daily chore that you do that you would like to have the chore fairy do for you instead. Okay, so I think whenever I first read this, I read it as just like any chore. So I'm going to give like two half answers. Uh, laundry. I hate putting laundry away more than anything in the world. You know, yes. if I can, if I have enough, if I have enough hangers, I actually don't mind it so much. But it's whenever you're searching rooms for hangers and stuff that I'm like very angry and just hot and right. you know, you're moving around too quickly and you can't really stay in one spot. It gets on my nerves. That would I'm be like one. angry at myself for having all the laundry done because now I have nowhere to put it all because I need some dirty. So I because I don't have enough hangers when all my right. laundry is clean. Exactly. So like, so like you're yeah. like, why did I get ahead? Why? Why am I trying right. to do this? This is just backfiring. So that would be one somebody to do that. But the one thing that really drives me crazy, I was thinking about this when I mop like in my kitchen and dining room area within 30 minutes, somebody has dropped something, yogurts on the floor, something that you can't just wipe up with a cloth that like you just see it. And that hurts my heart so much every time I do <laughs> that I feel like if somebody just did that for me, I wouldn't feel so pained about it every time it happened. But I feel like the scene in the Reba McIntyre song, whatever the one was, is her life out there, I think. Whenever she gets so mad at her kid for ruining the papers and the typewriter, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And I think I could just like have a little bit of freedom, like in in chores. I would just be like, it's okay, you spelled that. And I would mean it when I said those words. Like, it's all right. right. Don't right. worry. The, the chore right. fairy is going to take care of it instead right. of like, it's been five minutes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. I feel you there. That's one of the most daunting chores I feel like is to sweep and mop and like keep the floors free of debris and sticky things. It's definitely it's impossible. One of the hardest things. Yeah, it's impossible. So for me, I recently noticed how quickly things like the walls and baseboards and stuff get like just so random dirt spots and stuff and fingerprints somehow. I'm like, how are there fingerprints on the baseboards? As you know, we've been remodeling our house and I am a crazy person and chose a lot of white and light colored things. So now I'm seeing quickly. It looks beautiful though. What a mistake but, that was. Yeah, I mean, it But I did great. think you were very brave going with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I started looking around today. I was, actually, I was trying to do a project and then I got sidetracked and noticed that there was so many fingerprints and it looks like my kids have had their dirty feet up on the wall and like I'm like what is going on here like we can't have this this is all like I just painted this wall you right. know and I just need it to stay clean so I ended up going around with a magic yep. eraser which took all the dirt off really quickly and I kind of went and just hit the walls and you know the high traffic areas where the kids grab I don't know why why do kids touch the walls I, do you ever touch the wall no, when you're just no. walking around your house my kids <laughs> it's like both hands going down the hallway like they're being released from like a prison movie and they're finally getting right. a taste of freedom <laughs> Every freaking time they go around a corner, I just see hands. I'm like, why? <laughs> I don't understand it. So yeah, so that would be my chore fairy's chore. She could go around every day and just find the new little fingerprints and dirt spots on the walls and baseboards and and just wipe those off for yeah. me. And then I would always have clean walls and baseboards, which 
I feel like it's one of those things that like, it's a chore that you don't ever want to do. You don't ever want to just say, I'm just going to go wipe the walls mm-hmm. off. Like that sounds just, I mean, it sounds as boring as it is. So you never want to, but I feel like it's always something I notice like in my own home, I'm like, oh, the wall is dirty. I'm sure other people yeah. don't notice as much as you do because it's your house, but that would be my chore fairy chore. Clean the walls. I am pretty <laughs> convinced that my daughter just walks on the walls and just all right. the way around her room because I'm always like, I don't even know how your foot could have gotten here. Are you parkouring in here at night? I don't understand it. Yeah. I But there's satisfaction in using the uh, magic erasers. I'm a big believer in those. I things. love those. Me things. too. Just yes. you just feel like it's like wow. It's not just clean. It's really clean. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel very self important, and you know, like I'm really right. accomplishing yeah, yeah, something. Yeah. So yeah, I get it. Yeah. But it's annoying because it, there's always somebody's always touching something. Yeah, it's so funny. My husband had like two boxes of like 24 pack magic erasers in our Amazon cart just sitting there for like three weeks, and so I finally just ordered these two boxes. So I got them in the mail and. 24 is a lot of magic erasers. And then I actually Mm -hmm. got two boxes of those. So now I have 48 magic erasers. So uh, I can just clean the walls until the day I die. You just strap (laughs) into your kid's hands. So when they actually touch the walls, they're actually cleaning it instead. (laughs) I think there's a business to be made there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Perfect. Okay. So that was our thing. I have one more thing, Melissa, that I didn't tell you until now purposely because... I just wanted to catch you by surprise. So somebody else suggested that we do this and I thought it would be hilarious because neither one of us can speak like ever, even on the best (gasps) of terms. So I just want to try this. She wants us to say toy boat five times fast. Okay. (laughs) All right. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I have tried doing it to myself and it just sounds so ridiculous. So let's, let's hear it from you first and then I'll make a fool of myself after I'll do it. Bring it on. Here we go. Okay. Ready? Five <laughs> times? I'm sweating. Times. Okay, ready? Set. Toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat. What? I did it. What? What? I thought it was going to make it sound like I said a bad word or something. No. It's just like a tongue twister, I guess, because I cannot do it, but you definitely nailed it. You tried it. to stump I me? Like- <laughs> <laughs> I did. I even purposely didn't tell you because oh I was like, I don't gosh. want to practice. Like- <laughs> so evil. Um, yeah, I can't say police most of the time. Officer is the word I can't say. Oh, I just did it. Why couldn't I have that word to say today? Okay. Andy, your turn. Toy boat. Okay, here we go. All right. Five times. Okay. Toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat. I, times, toy I boat. think your oys are just more uh, pronounced Oy. than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying it earlier and I was my mouth was making the craziest words like they weren't even real. I said like I don't even like toy boy at one point. Toy boy. I don't know. Boy toy. <laughs> yeah. Whole new whole new show. Different show you're listening to. Well, I think we both did pretty good. I think you did much better than me and it gave me an idea for a future last thing before we go that we should just do tongue twisters and see. You are not going to stump me. I'm going to just only look up tongue twisters from now on and just be prepared <laughs> at any time for you to throw these on me. I will not go down without a fight. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, that was fun. I'm, I'm proud of you. I just wish that you did worse so that we could all have a laugh. Normally I do. I'm as surprised as you, (laughs) Mandy, you've heard about my week. This is, I needed this one. I really needed it. (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) Okay. That is enough for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the moms and murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. 
You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.